Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, and this week I am interviewing one David French. He and I talked about the legal intricacies of what happened with the Texas abortion law at the Supreme Court on the flagship podcast, Advisory Opinions. But I wanted to go further. I really wanted to talk about the politics of abortion, and who better than David French? right in. David, I don't know where else to start. I'm watching this. I'm looking at it. It, it, again, we're talking pure politics. This looks like an enormous gift to the Biden administration who needed something to take the media's focus off Afghanistan. Uh, was this a giant F up for the, for the Republicans? Let's start with that first. Um, giant. I'm going to I'm going to hold open that question on giant uh because one of my points is I think because we're likely to see the Texas law blocked relatively soon days weeks I don't know um I think it's going to recede in importance pretty quickly w- compared to what we're going to see when the Dobbs case is decided that's going to be giant Dobbs being the Louisiana 15-week ban that the Supreme Court, it's not scheduled yet. It'll either be uh, probably the December arguments at this point. Right. So I think we need to sort of back up and and talk about where are people on abortion? Like, where's the, remember, Sarah, yesterday we started by saying, okay, everybody, forget everything you just read on Twitter. (laughs) Um, We need to do that again. Because Twitter is way skewed on intensity, um, way skewed on intensity. So on both sides, let's back right exactly on both sides. So where are people on abortion? And it's becoming increasingly clear that two things are going on at once. A lot of da- data now indicates, and Ryan Burge from Eastern Illinois University has compiled a lot of this, and I put it in my newsletter for yesterday that if you're going to look at, if you're going to rate people, say, zero to five with zero completely opposed to abortion and five completely in favor, the fives who are completely in favor are much are now much more politically active than anybody else. This is your most politically active segment of America. So that's number one. Number two, um, actually, abortion is becoming decreasingly important even in the evangelical coalition, and the evangelical coalition is not as pro-life as you might think. So this is a really interesting thing that, again, that if you don't, if you're just on Twitter, you would never know this. Um, That in fact, if you look at some data that Example, for example, the position, uh, a candidate's position on immigration is now more important uh, to even an evangelical, a self-described evangelical voter than is their position on abortion. Uh, Their position on addressing the um, opioid epidemic is more important than the position on abortion. I mean, there's a host of things. Reducing healthcare costs, more important than abortion. And so what is interesting is that abortion is not as salient an issue, even in the evangelical population, as it is, as you might think, 
And then number two, that the people who are becoming, and this has not always been the case, most intense about that issue are on, on the left. And you add that together, and it seems to me, and this is, you know, this is rank punditry, Sarah, but data-based rank punditry, that the more you make an abortion, a, a, what, it's not an aband, but as close to it as you're going to get in, in most American laws, the more that you make that the salient political issue, say in the midterms, I'm not quite sure that's going to work as well for the Republicans as they might think. And we certainly see that reflected in the faces of Republican leadership this week. Um, you'd think if if this were the most popular thing that could have happened, we would have seen lots of cheering and shouting and yeah, uh, yeehaws coming from a bunch of Republican and pro-life uh, senators, House members, congressmen. Um, we didn't. Uh, and I guess what I'm confused about on that is like, is this just another example of the Republican Party not believing what it's been saying this whole time? Like the dog <laughs> caught the squirrel and now it's like, oh, uh, hey, squirrel. <laughs> the squirrel so doesn't taste good. What are we going to do together now? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because there's this other element to the Texas situation that we haven't talked about yet, which is the Texas law is kind of um, uh, gaming the system. Okay, so it, it, it is something that is intentionally designed to make it harder to challenge a um, a pro-life law to make it harder to challenge the law in court, as we saw with the Supreme Court ruling, and that it's something that's easily replicated by people on a whole host of constitutional issues, if they so desired, where you could engineer a series of temporary deprivations of constitutional law. And so it's something that, on the one hand, you had a, a bill, let's stipulate for the moment that the position a heartbeat bill position is the majority position in Texas. Let's just stipulate that if you if you're polling Texans, um, that that's a majority position in Texas. It's not in a majority position nationally, and I say that as a pro life person with lament. I wish it was a majority position nationally. It appears not to be a majority position nationally, at least certainly by the way that people vote whether you're going to you know, be asking them questions and a poll, abortion is notoriously difficult to poll, but it's not a majority position nationally. Can I just do a quick album side on why polling on abortion is very flawed in my view? One, every abortion question that mentions Roe is meaningless. Just go ahead and don't read the rest of the question. Chuck out the answer because they're using Roe as shorthand. Yeah, I get that. But what that shorthand means to individual people is going to vary widely, and you're not asking them what Roe means. Therefore, the question's meaningless. Second, when you say, should abortion be legal in most circumstances or not legal in most circumstances? Uh, yeah, nope, that doesn't work either because that's not actually what we're arguing about. We're arguing about really three buckets of stuff. One, when in a pregnancy abortion should be legal. What restrictions should be on providers? Do they need uh, ambulatory centers, stuff like that? And uh, three, what regulations should be on patients, waiting periods, notifications, stuff like that? Uh, if you're asking specifically about those, then you run into all my issues with issue polling. But like, you're not even getting there in most of these abortion questions. You're just asking abortion, like it, dislike it. Most people feel very differently about abortion at eight months than they do at six weeks. If you're not asking the specifics, you're getting a nonsense answer. Okay, now please continue. 
Yeah. And so, so you're looking at something that nationally is not where people are, even if it's where they are in Texas, executed in a way that feels like gamesmanship to an awful lot of people. Now, again, this is where you have to ignore sort of the Twitter and everyone high-fiving, look how smart we are that we did this in Texas. Is this something that you would want to see replicated in other states targeting religious freedom, targeting gun rights? I mean, targeting, you name it. It is a, it's a development that, as I said, it seems deliberately engineered to make it harder to challenge a constitutional violation. Man, I don't like that. I don't like that. So you have the gamesmanship. You have a position that is probably out of step with the majority of Americans. So it, that, and, and it's dominating the news taking a lot of attention away from the Biden administration's just rank incompetence and deception following the collapse in Afghanistan. So there are, there are reasons why, Sarah, just flat out political reasons why you would see some long faces <laughs> and just, just in a pure political analysis. And again, I say this from a position of lamentation because you know, I've been a pro-life, I, I formed a pro-life group at Harvard in 1992 called the Society for Law, Life, and Religion, which by the way, if you're going to form a student group, think of how people are going to use your acronym because for the next like 20 years, it was just called SLUR. Oh yeah. No, it was called that when I was there. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> there was SLUR. And so I've been, I've been in the pro-life grassroots for ever. I think the first, the actual first pro-life measure I tried to get through like a, stu a student council was when I was in student government at Lipscomb University. I tried to push through a provision where we did not suspend automatically unwed mothers, <laughs> which, which I thought was not a pro-life measure. <laughs> What's was this my in 1814? What, <laughs> when were you in college? My God. I, I mean, it was a while back. It was like, 89, 90, maybe. So, I mean, Jean Valjean's going to come pick up the orphan. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, one more question on then the, the Republican part of this, you're right that it's a long time to the 2022 midterms. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, when it comes to judicial picks, for instance, and we have to have conservative judicial picks so that they can overturn Roe, uh, that has always been according to polling and according to now some decent evidence, for instance, in the Missouri Senate race in 2018 um, and 2016. There's some evidence that that will animate the right more than the left. Okay, now there's a 6-3 majority on the court. Now there's this Texas. Assume for a second that uh, Texas is still percolating in 2022. Not that there's not some injunction on it, but it hasn't gotten to the Supreme Court. Dobbs has done whatever. Um, who, if abortion is still a top issue going into the midterms, who does this animate more if it's still in the balance? Boy, that is a, a great question. I, you know, so much depends on the outcome of Dobbs. Um, if, if Dobbs comes out without overturning the Roe KC framework, in other words, uh, eliminating the constitutional right to an abortion, if it comes out without that, it's going to have, in, in that sense, I think it's going to have a demoralizing effect amongst a lot of Republican base, very base voters, sort of your core pro-life activists. It's going to be very demoralizing. Probably, 
more or less neutral to most voters, but it'll also remove from the Democrats a huge motivator to get to the polls in 2022. So I think in some ways it might, after sort of an enormous wave of commentary immediately following the decision, by November, will it even be a thing if what ends up happening is the basic abortion regime in the United States where 90, 95% of abortions or when 90, 95% of abortions take place is untouched. I think it will be in a lot of ways, a non-issue in 2022. If Roe Casey is completely overturned, you've got, you're going to have a seismic shock amongst particularly the left side of the spectrum. You might have a lot of surprise on the part of Republican voters who are not necessarily, um, that's not necessarily their big issue. They're sort of more in the middle on the abortion question. That's not going to necessarily motivate them to get to the polls. And I would anticipate a wave of pressure for something like court packing, for example. Um, And then that brings us to something that we haven't talked about. Um, I I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and I described the Republican Party as a house of cards that the Democratic Party seems to be singularly incompetent at pushing over. (laughs) And because the the Democratic Party is really captured by also by a base that's out of step with most people on abortion. And so what ends up happening is the Democratic Party there's a part of the GOP base that is out of step with the majority and they push the GOP in a way that's out of step with the majority and the same on the Democrats. And they have pushed and have succeeded in imposing on, on the United States of America an abortion regime that Europeans look at, you know, these secular, you know, godless European democracies look at and say, what, wait, what? Abortion's legal that late? Really? Seriously? And so if you have countering extremisms, you know, the, the, you have a, and I say extremism only in sort of where people fall on a political spectrum because I fall on the spectrum of abortion should be banned in insta- all instances except life of the mother, um, then if you have these countering extremisms, then that whole middle, that whole middle, which is really broad in its views, in many ways just doesn't know where to go. They just don't know where to go. So that brings me to the strategy, the political strategy of the pro-life movement. And that's really why I want to talk to you. Because I have read it both ways, that this was strategically brilliant and strategically stupid. And I want to offer you both theses and see which one you're, you're buying into at the moment. So um, strategically stupid, I think is more obvious. We're now all talking about this incredibly extreme ban, six weeks, as you said, uh, the majority of the country doesn't think this is a good idea. Not only is it a what amounts to a ban in Texas after five, six weeks, it's also the cleverness and the cuteness of the whole thing. It's sneaky, um, not a good look for the pro-life movement, not the way you want to win this fight. This isn't hearts and minds. This is, uh, we got one past you. All right, let me give you the other version. Ahaha, no, because we're all talking about this very extreme six-week thing that Texas has done, Dobbs 
where the ball game is actually being played looks super reasonable. Yeah, six weeks, we're all like, yeah, 15 weeks? That is in line uh, with Europe. That's why Mississippi passed that one. They had sort of, you know, really thought this through. They looked at international law, something Republicans loathe. Um, in most of Europe after the first trimester, it, it's not this heated issue over there. It's more like, look, you've had the opportunity. You've gotten to think about this. And if you haven't made up your mind now, the balance now goes shifts to the baby from the mother. And so Mississippi's like, let's bring some European style morality uh, to America. <laughs> and that now, whereas 15 weeks before looked like, uh, you know, the end of the earth, the flat earth, and there be dragons after that, the Texas has now filled in the gap of where the dragons actually are. And 15 weeks just looks like some good old American apple pie. Um, so which is it? Was it strategically stupid to do this in Texas or just totally brilliant jujitsu? I mean, it totally depends on how Dobbs comes out because if if Dobbs is, we're preserving a constitutional right to abortion in some form, but upholding the 15 weeks, then if they uphold the 15 weeks, there's a segment of the left that is going to absolutely be furious. But you know what? They will look extreme to the majority of Americans who think 15 weeks is a totally fine, that's a totally fine limit, absolutely fine. And so there's this part that is, if the Supreme Court is on kind of this institutionalist mindset, we want to preserve the institution and the, of the Supreme Court and the public credibility of the court, interesting, there is an argument that says, um, well, if you uphold this 15 week, which is right in line with Europe and other countries that we respect and like, and right in line with where a lot of Americans are, that people, people really being upset on the left will be seen as weird, but there will also be people really upset on the right and view that as a failure of the conservative legal movement. I mean, the total failure of the conservative legal movement. So you will see two sides, two ends really, really, really being angry about it. And so just from a political standpoint, that 15 week, that sort of 15, sticking with that 15 week middle ground without really touching Roe Casey as an underlying constitutional construct, you're going to really tick off both wings. And then there's going to be a middle that's just kind of like, oh, of course. <laughs> okay, fine. All right, next story. Um, and so that's that's where I think Dobbs will become. That's why I call the Texas thing kind of the sideshow before the main show. Uh, it's like preseason football before the regular season. Is this is if you think this is big, this this outcome and Dobbs is going to be huge. Um, and the other thing we haven't really talked about yet, Sarah, which I think is so important. So I said earlier, I believe as a matter of justice and what should a just legal system do? Uh, it should protect the life of the unborn, except when the life of the, and in the physical health of the mother is at stake. And, but what is the object of the pro-life movement? Is it to ban abortion or is it to end abortion? And those are not necessarily the same things. Okay. And this is so important. <laughs> Because if you look at the actual numbers on abortion, 
the abortion rate was higher in 1973 than it is now. And in 1973, abortion was banned in most states. Okay. So an abortion ban does not necessarily mean an abortion end. Why do we know that? Because there was a higher abortion rate when abortion was mostly banned than there is now where abortion is legal in all 50 states. And so the pro-life movement's objective is ending abortion. And banning abortion does not necessarily end abortion. And this is something that has to be understood. And a lot of people don't make these distinctions, and which is why I always go back to where are we culturally? Where are we morally on this? And if you take political actions that impair the cultural argument, you can be defeating the pro-life cause, which is about saving lives at the end of the day, even as you're advancing a legal superstructure, if that makes sense. So for those listening at home, uh, that right there was like the whole reason I wanted to talk to David this morning. I actually wasn't sure that we were going to record this as a podcast so much as I wanted to get on the phone and talk with David. And like, that was it. That's what I, that's what I was. I didn't know. I didn't know. Yes. Ban versus end. Uh, yeah, that's it. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. So neither of us, obviously, were in the room as this was being, um, as, this, as they came up with the Mississippi law. But David, do you think I'm right that this was actually very controversial that Mississippi only did a 15-week ban? It was a legal strategy versus the movement strategy. And whereas in Texas, uh, I'm sure there was a similar debate, the movement strategy beat out the legal strategy people. Although, again, with the legal strategy people coming up with a really cute way to not have it enjoined. Um, I bet that the <laughs> there were people who felt very betrayed when Mississippi did this 15-week ban and we're like screw the legal strategy this is not actually a victory here to just have a 15-week ban um, i'm curious if you've ever been in the rooms for those discussions of legal strategy versus movement strategy oh my gosh this is this is one of the reasons why the the pro-life movement is <laughs> there's a lot of people who really dislike each other in the pro-life movement <laughs> Uh, who share the same objective. I mean, really, and this is something that goes back years and years and years. It's not just like a, a Twitter prod, uh, product of Twitter and, and, and modern Twitter beefs. This is something that's, there, there has been an awful lot of dispute between incrementalists and what are called sort of abolitionists, which is misleading because virtually everyone in the pro-life movement is, is abolitionist. But an abolitionist would be somebody who right now there is only one strategy and that one strategy is total abolition. Anything other, incrementalism is, you know, of the devil. But Mississippi has a heartbeat law too. So what a lot of these states have done is they sort of have their cake and eat it too. They'll pass an incremental law and then they'll pass the more totalizing law and then the both of them wind their way up through the courts. So that's sort of how uh, a lot of these states have squared that circle. So Louisiana, which we just had 
a case around the admitting privileges law at the Supreme Court of the United States. It also has a heartbeat law, which is blocked by court order. So there, so basically the way a lot of states have done it is they'll pass the incremental law and they'll pass the more totalizing law. But you're absolutely correct on is there division in the pro-life movement over tactics? Heck yes. I mean, there's been division on some of the amicus briefs filed in the and filed in the Dobbs case. Like, not all of them are going are swinging for the fences on uh, getting rid of Roe Casey, and it's causing a lot of people to be angry because the argument is: wait, we don't want to give the justices if we're a pro-life movement, we don't want to give the justices a framework to rule on any other basis other than getting rid of Roe Casey. And so you have, you should see my inbox some days on Smart. <laughs> pro-life folks who are saying now is not the time for incrementalism and now is not the time you know now is no time for incrementalism and then another is wait you can't you can't just swing right for the fences if you swing for the fences then somebody's going to you know hit a double and you're going to be and you're going to deflate the whole movement and it real there's a lot of disagreement and argument and it generates a lot of anger um <laughs> which will surprise absolutely nobody and my view legally has always been, essentially, I, I have seen, uh, my view legally has always been the both-and approach. Uh, pass a heartbeat bill and pass an incremental <laughs> restriction. Um, if that's, you know, if you, if you have the kind of dem overwhelming Democrat, I mean, overwhelming pro-life majority in your state, uh, and your argument is this should be a matter of state, this should go back to the states, the more states pass heartbeat bills and, and the like, the more they tell the Supreme Court there's a giant movement, might be a minority in the whole United States of America, but certainly a, a, a majority and sometimes even a supermajority in a lot of American jurisdictions against this abortion, uh, the current ab abortion legal regime. So I'm assuming that you will have a better grasp of this than I do. If Roe is overturned in Dobbs, and I want to be very specific about what I mean by Roe, meaning we already you have to get rid of Casey to even get through to Roe. Roe is simply the existence of the constitutional right to an abortion. Uh, so that is gone. And that means the entire issue devolves to the states. What does the country look like the next, I don't know, let's call it one year later, two years later, whatever metric you want to use. I've seen 22 states have some ban on abortion. Um, I've seen higher, I've seen lower. Eight states have pre-Roe abortion bans that are still on the books that would maybe become automatically in place after. Tell me what happens. Yeah. So this is a really good question. So we, we you know, as we've discussed, legally what happens is it comes up, goes up to the states. On the ground, what happens? Well, this has been this has been studied pretty carefully, because what you have is a, a series of legal regimes where states with smaller populations and low abortion rates. So this is very important. So states like Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, which have very restrictive abortion laws, even by the time those laws were passed, the abortion rates there were already low. Okay compared to say a New York or a California. So you have states with smaller populations that have already low abortion rates that pass restrictive abortion legislation that would then go into effect once Roe is decided. And the result is that between 
87 to 90 or so, between eight, you know, roughly 80, 87, 88, 89, 90% of abortions would still take place in the United States of America. Why is that? You say, wait a minute, over, Roe's overturned and a whole bunch of states would, their heartbeat bills would go into play, effect. These are, again, are lower population states with the exception of Texas that already had low abortion rates by and large. The higher population states, New York, California, more progressive states, they already have a higher abortion rate. And then, of course, people in some of these low, uh, in some of these states with um, anti-abortion laws could travel to a legal state or they could get one illegally. So overturning Roe would mean maybe a 10, 12, 13% decrease in abortions, which is a shocking to a lot of people because they think, wait, I thought overturning Roe would end abortion or would materially change the facts on the ground. And the reality is, yeah, 10% decrease in abortions is a lot. I mean, that's a lot of people, but it is not what people expect. Uh, they don't think, oh, wait, we end Roe and 90% of abortions will still happen. Can I throw in one more factor that you're not even considering in that? Uh, plan B will still be available over the counter and perhaps people will be more thoughtful, more quick to uh, use that or maybe more thoughtful about birth control, et cetera. I actually think you will see even less of a decrease than the shocking number you just said, which is blowing my mind right now. But I think that could be an <laughs> overestimate, not an underestimate. Yeah, it, it's entirely People possible. People respond and, to the market. <laughs> yeah, they, well, it's entirely possible. And also it's important to realize that these heartbeat bills were passed at a time when nobody believed they would go into effect right? So in, in a lot of ways, they were a freebie. This was sort of a way that you could signal, yes. we're pro-life, I'm pro-life. And so you could tell primary voters, I'm pro-life, I, I signed the heartbeat bill. But nobody did it, believe it not, not one legislator voted for it, believing we're going to actually have a heartbeat bill regime. In fact, the Texas legislature, by its maneuvering, was the only one that really made it possible to even do it temporarily. Um, and so what happens in all these states? I don't know. Does it do, do uh, another set of legislators say, wait a minute, um, my voters are saying that isn't actually the way they want this state to be. Do some of these swing suburban voters who've been swinging kind of blue say that, that I'm more moderate on this issue than that? It remains to be seen. But again, at the same time, you will also have, um, if Roe is overturned, a national democratic push to enact a national, a federal statute codifying Roe. And I've seen the language of some of those statutes, and you know what? They're pretty extreme. <laughs> so, and, and so are, would the Democrats move so far in the opposite direction as to, you know, throw away whatever political advantage they get um, in some of these other states, yeah, I mean, just go back to it's a house of cards that the Democratic Party seems unique, uniquely incapable of pushing down. Uh, let me give you the like hilarious uh, scenario for the pro-life movement, which is this issue very much stays in the front. As you said, the fives on the one to five scale are the more motivated that Democrats snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and manage to hold on to the house, which as of you know, three days ago, I would have said they would not hold on to. I already think they're going to hold on to the Senate, maybe even pick up a seat or two. So they maintain control of 
both houses of Congress and the presidency, the Supreme Court, let's say, finally strikes down Casey and Roe. And the result is that the Democrats have the votes then to not only pass national federal legislation recreating a uh, now statutory right to abortion at any stage uh, of gestation, and they pack the court. (laughs) Thus endeth American democracy because of the court packing, not the statutory regime. Mm -hmm. Um, And like the pro-life movement caused the end of the American experiment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I... I would say, like, if we were around, if this was a conversation 10 years ago, um, I would say, wow, that's, um, that's pretty catastrophic there, Sarah. But you know what? I wrote a whole book. <laughs> I feel like it's the <laughs> other scenario for your book, like part, the second book by David. I think this is it. <laughs> but, you know, in the book, I, when it, one of the scenarios I did, I had one scenario for CalExit and I had one scenario for Texit. And the Texit scenario was found, formed around a a 5-4 um, reversal of Roe Casey followed by a court pack. And it wasn't the court pack itself that did it. It was all the consequences of the court pack where all these red states say, um, we believe the court pack is an illegitimate, the court is now illegitimate. We're not going to follow its directives, which leads to a constitutional crisis. People make terrible mistakes, yada, yada, yada. And then everything starts to collapse. And You know, uh, one of the issues here, though, with the abortion question that is so difficult, again, we're in this political realm, right? What's so difficult is that Roe itself was destabilizing. And, I mean, Justice Ginsburg said this in 1992 before she was Justice Ginsburg. She said, if Roe was less breathtaking in scope, are we where we are? The answer is no. So Roe itself is destabilizing. So it's, it, you know, one of the, the, the questions Which is, is why, and what by I the raised, way, like it, this is always what annoys me when people talk about Roe. Casey overturns Roe. Yes, the Casey court, when you actually go read it, says, oh, no, 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 we're not overturning Roe. Uh, we're keeping the quote unquote essence of Roe, whatever that is. And then they go on to overturn Roe in every other aspect in terms of the standard used, the level of scrutiny used, everything else. So honestly, like, people should really stop talking about Roe. The, the country thought it was destabilizing. The court itself thought it was destabilizing. And they replaced Roe with Casey. And yet we still talk about Roe and it drives me crazy. <laughs> right, right. So I'll just say Roe Casey. All right. So um, what ended up happening is that was destabilizing. So sort of, and it has been destabilizing. It's one of the reasons why our national politics are so fraught is has long been this very issue. And so it's one of those issues, Sarah, where, where what is the stabilizing path? And it's very difficult to discern. I mean, it's very difficult to discern. And, and that's, what, that, that's where we are. If you're the Supreme Court and you say, well, our, our stabilizing path is uh, upholding or modifying the Casey standard in some way, do our politics look stable to you now? <laughs> They're not all that stable. This is an issue that is so fraught and that this that has been fraught for 50 years. And my argument is if we could survive the initial wave, the shock wave of the overturning of Roe v. and the Roe Casey framework, that in the long run, it actually might be more stabilizing because it will return the issue to the voters 
national politics on this point will be less fraught and um and it that could have a stabilizing effect but let me tell you can i get can i get more bleak sarah oh please okay so i was talking to somebody um yesterday off the record super about about the smartest observer of this stuff as you can find and he said here's the reality um all of this data that says that abortion is becoming less salient even for, or isn't as salient even for evangelicals than you might think it is. There are other culture war issues that are inflaming us 10 times more than abortion. Um, you know, if in, in people who follow, for example, donor interest and donor activity and grassroots activity, things like cancel culture, the anti-CRT fight, the, you know, the wars over wokeness. All of those things energize the grassroots right now orders of magnitude more than abortion. Just orders of magnitude. And, and that's actually consistent with my own experience going back for some time. I mean, before I was a, um, before I was a dispatcher and a member of the media, uh, <laughs> I was a pro-life lawyer and religious liberty lawyer. And I can tell you, and I, would, I fundraised so much over the last 20, 25 years on abortion, religious liberty. It was, e it was a lot easier 15 years ago to raise money to take on the campus left than it was to raise money for a pro-life cause. 15 years ago. Um, if abortion was the most motivating factor in the Republican grassroots, why do crisis pregnancy centers often function on shoestring budgets and struggle for volunteers? I mean, that, that's kind of the, the sad little secret behind the curtain, which is when it comes to how people vote with their wallets and their time, abortion isn't as salient as it appears on Twitter. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, last topic. You and I talk about... Uh, politics with a small p of the Supreme Court a lot on the flagship podcast, Advisory Opinions. Um, <laughs> for this podcast, I want to stipulate that the entire court is a political actor. Every justice and the court itself, somehow the nine of them who form um, like Power Rangers style, like the big green guy when they put their rings mm -hmm. together. Um, wait, that was not Power Rangers. Is that what, you know, the eco guys who like, one's earth, one's water, one's... 
Um, oh, was that uh, Wonder Twins? No, wait. No. That, was, that was only two. That was like Earth and Water or whatever. No. No, there's there's Earth, Water, Fire, and Wind. And they put their rings together and they form the g- green guy and they're like eco-warriors. This was back in the 90s, obviously. Maybe the 80s. Um, Perhaps it's my cultural conservatism, but I was not as familiar with the environmentalist superhero genre. Okay, okay. <laughs> Uh, no doubt, uh, legendary <laughs> producer Caleb will have looked this up by the time I finish. But <laughs> the point being, uh, treat the court as just a political animal. What has the Texas bill? Again, I want to give you two different scenarios here. One is um, the Texas bill shenanigans have spooked the court, uh, make them less likely to rule in a sweeping fashion in Dobbs because it's shown them just how salient and passionate people are about this issue, or Two, uh, they've stuck their toe in the water and like, yeah, it's a little chilly, but man, it's not as bad as they thought. How does the Supreme Court get affected by the external factors here? That's a great question. I've been, I've literally been thinking about that a ton <laughs> ever since the, was it what, late Wednesday night when the decision came down? And here's where I'm thinking, here's where I am on this. I think to the extent that they're just a political actor, they're going to be surprised at how quickly the move, the news cycle moves on to, to the extent they're just a political actor, um, that the, the level, no matter the consequence, no matter how consequential the issue is, it is often shocking how quickly it will be. It, it is dumped from public consciousness. So think about how this Texas law, which is a temporary it is a it is a temporary um, alteration to the Roe Casey framework in one state out of fifty has dumped from the front pages a catastrophic American military defeat with hundreds of Americans still left behind military uh, still left behind enemy lines like that that's off the front pages now because of this now on the one hand you'd say well that's how important this is but just you wait. Just you wait and you're going to see something else. And so I think overall, if they're sort of, you know, if they're not taking this sort of knee jerk view that a a 24 to 48 hour to 72 hour snapshot tells us what we need to know and they take a longer view, they're going to come to the conclusion that is, well, we just might as well rule according to our jurisprudential philosophy, which is what they should be doing anyway. I think that's exactly right. on, on both fronts, what they should be doing, but also I think what, why, why justices always come back to that? Because even if they do look around, it's like, meh, this is, this is a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, I did find it. I can't believe I forgot this. Such an important part of my childhood. Captain Planet and the Planeteers. And I even forgot <laughs> one of the Planeteers. So it's <laughs> Earth, uh, Wind, Fire, Water, and Heart. I forgot the little dude whose heart. heart. And then they put their little rings together and they form Captain Planet and they stop pollution and people who litter or who dump stuff in the ocean. And there's a song that goes with it. And I, I urge you, if you were not a child uh, of the 80s and 90s, uh, just go ahead and look up that song because it's going to be stuck in your head all day. Uh, David, can, what was hey, the- Sarah, can I... Can I make yeah. right before we go one last recommendation on this? Yeah. Topic. Not Captain Planet. Oh, well then we I'm not pl- sure I do want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> no. It this is a recommendation. So I talked about the difference between 
banning abortion and ending abortion. They're not the same things. Everyone needs to understand that. And the priority of pro-life movement should be ending abortion. All right. The single best thing I have read to understand why abortion rates have been plummeting, even as Americans are still broadly somewhere in the middle on the abortion, the legality issue, is a Notre Dame study, and it is called How Americans Understand Abortion. Okay, we can put it in the show notes. I'll I'll put it in our chat right now. And what they did is they took hundreds of people, demographically representative, and they had conversations with them about abortion, not ask them poll questions, had real conversations. And the bottom line findings were pretty fascinating. But amongst those findings was a really interesting, There, so again, it was a minority were for banning, a minority were for protecting right up into, until birth. But every one of them didn't want abortion. They didn't, when they're talking about their own, their own, this is, this is the, this is the key sentence. None of the Americans we interviewed talked about abortion as a desirable good. And that was a fascinating finding. So wherever your legality is, this was done, this came out in 20, late 2019, early 2020. Wow. So really recent, because I mean, to me that that's, goes back to why the Clinton phrase was so, uh, worked so well, safe, legal, and rare. Because actually, I think that's where the vast, vast majority of Americans uh, are to some extent, you know, still on a spectrum. Um, and, and why I think, you know, some of the reporting this week was sort of ghoulish. Again, no matter where you are on pro-life, pro-choice, anything on the spectrum, um, as they're talking about racing to complete 47 abortions before midnight of babies with heartbeats. Like they're talking about getting refugees out of Afghanistan. I I don't think that's where most people are. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But that Notre Dame study, and it also will really inform you if you're pro-life on where you stand on things like child allowances, that, that one of the things that a lot of these folks were talking about were why would somebody get a, an abortion? Some things were personal things that state policy can't really touch, like a boyfriend's pressuring someone or parents' pressure, which is a, a thing that happens. Um, but another one was how financially secure do people feel? And one of the interesting things about the Mitt Romney proposal was he, he says you start getting the child allowance while the child is still in the womb to help prepare the family financially. It's a very interesting... And if you're sort of looking at public policy through a public, if you're looking at public policy through a pro-life lens, please read this study, please. It will really impact the way you think about a lot of different issues. All right. So my childhood was Saturday morning cartoons. Um, and I particularly was into Captain Planet, obviously, and Teenage Mutant <laughs> Ninja Turtles. Uh, what's the equivalent from your childhood? Oh, wrestling. I'm sorry. Not- what? Is that a- you don't. As a, as a Texan, you got to know it, wrestling. So wrestling is the sport that is played in high school and college. Wrestling is WWE, you know, it's uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson back in the day, Hulk Hogan, or when I was growing up, Jerry the King Lawyer. Lawyer, Lawler. <laughs> Jerry the King Lawler. My apologies, King. I know you're listening. 
So wrestling, that was the, you, I would wake up, roll out of bed, flip on the TV and watch, watch wrestling and then go to school on Monday. And we would talk for hours debating not only who should have won various matches, but whether it was real or not. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Have you ever been noodling, David? I feel like like noodling is the the flip side of the wrestling coin there. (laughs) I have, even though I grew up in the rural South, I have to say I've never been noodling, much to my shame. I loved fishing for catfish, but no, never with my arm. Uh, All right, listeners. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining. David, thanks for being here. This was the conversation that I needed this week. It's, it's, I was craving it. Thank you. Well, thanks, Sarah. This was fun. You, last night you said, are you available for the Dispatch Pod? And I said, who's the guest? You said, <laughs> I did. That's literally you. how this went. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I'll, I'm going to see you in uh, just a few minutes for our Dispatch Fantasy Football League draft. Indeed. Indeed. I enjoy watching you finish second. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.